Thank you so much. What a joy it is to be here this morning. Chris and I met a number of years ago. In fact, it was during COVID we met and uh, sparked up a good friendship and uh, had him and Amy at our house a couple of years ago. And, and it's been nice to just get to know you, Chris, and your family. And uh, thank you for trusting me with this privilege here this morning. I have a confession to make here this morning. I'm not sure maybe I'm the only one here that likes this particular uh, study, but I am fascinated by the study of biology. How many of you in this room here this morning like biology? Oh, we've got a few. I thought we'd have a whole bunch of people like, no, 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 school's over. I don't want to think about biology. I absolutely love biology. More than biology, I love God's creation. I love to, I love to investigate God's creation, find out how he made things in this world from the big things in outer space all the way down to the smallest, minutest human cell. And that's what gets us back to biology. You see, at one time, we thought that the human cell was relatively simple. Something like this, you know. Back in the day, we had the ability to be able to zoom in on the human cell, and we thought, really, this is all the human cell was. You know, you had the cell membrane, and you had this cytoplasm here in this, this kind of juicy stuff, this liquid stuff, and then you had the nucleus in the center. And we thought, oh, wow, what an amazing thing that God created. And then, years later, we developed the ability to zoom in even closer on the human cell, and we found out that there are things like DNA in the middle here, DNA and RNA, and you know we have things like uh, ribosomes, and we have other things in the cell like like these um, um, amino acids and proteins. And all of them, we, could, we were able to see them there in the human cell, and we're like, wow, this thing is way more complex than we ever, ever imagined. And then we developed the ability to zoom in even closer, and we found that all of these little parts of the cell actually are interconnected, and they're interconnected by means of information code. That's just like, with like these super highways going throughout the cell, back and forth, where you have these, these little, these little um, cell um, doors, and then these doors in between the, the nucleus of the cell, bringing information in and information out, and it's all speaking to each other. And we're like, wow, this thing that God has made is far more sophisticated than anything that God or that man has ever created. It's far more sophisticated than these things we have in our pockets. One human cell. You know, I think about that particular analogy whenever I come to a place like 2 Kings chapter 2 in the Bible. Yes, 2 Kings chapter 2 in the Bible has something to do with the complexity of the human cell. You see, the... Closer we zoom in, the farther we go into a text like this, we see just how interconnected it is, not just with other places in, say, 2 Kings or 1 Kings, and not just other places in, like, the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, but we see that it has actually superstructures and superhighways everywhere in the Bible. So this morning, I want to do, in a sense, what we just did. And I want to zoom in on at least a number of particular things that often get overlooked in this 
story. And by zooming in on these particular elements, I think we're going to see a deeper meaning and a deeper message than probably most of us have seen before. I have been studying the ministries of Elijah and Elisha now for at least two years, like on like hyperdrive. And I am literally, my mind is blown all the time. I see more things all the time, and it's just amazing. I want to share some of these things with you. So our structure of our sermon this morning is three, three main points and then some application. So number one, I want to zoom in on the prophet's farewell tour. The prophet's farewell tour. We pick up the story here in verse 1. Notice here in verse 1, the time, this is the introduction to the story. The time had come for Elijah, for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. So this is, this is the introduction to the story. That's where we're going. That's where this story is headed. We're headed to this whirlwind experience where God is going to beam Elijah up to heaven and he will be no more on this earth. So that's where we're going, but it's not going to happen in the old way. It's not going to happen in any old place. It's only going to happen after a very interesting itinerary, a very interesting journey, a very interesting tour through the promised land. So notice verse 2. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And as they were traveling, Elisha said to Elijah, or Elisha just said to Elisha, I'm going to do that the entire sermon. Elijah and Elisha is tough, okay? And they were traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. First thing I want you to notice here is this is not Elijah's itinerary. This itinerary, this journey, this tour is not something that Elijah has conjured up in his mind. As though, here, before I go, he knows he's about to leave, as before I go, I'm, I want to take you, Elisha, on this journey and just kind of see some sights of the promised land. That is not the point here. Who is directing this journey? <coughs> what? Who? Who is it? The Lord, right? The Lord is doing this. This is... The Lord's itinerary. That is extremely important as we go forward. And notice here that he says, the Lord is sending me on to a particular place, a town. And the town is called Bethel. So here's the idea here. This is a kind of a picture of the, the promised land. This is a really, really simple one. And what you got here is, say, this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land of Israel. And he, up here you've got, what, the Sea of? Kids. Galilee, right. Okay, see a Galilee down here, the dead, the dead sea, right? And right here, say, right here in the middle here, we've got this town called Bethel. I'm just going to put a B right there, all right? So Elijah and Elisha are somewhere in northern Israel. We don't know exactly where. Gilgal, it's really confusing as to whether this Gilgal is alongside the, the river of Jordan or it's somewhere up in central northern Israel. We're not sure. But in any case, Elijah and Elisha are going to go down to Bethel. Now notice what happens when they get there. Notice verse, verse 4. Elijah then said to him, as they were at Bethel, and I notice, I notice I skipped over some stuff here, guys. Okay. I'm skipping over this on purpose 
Alright, guilty as charged. I cannot comment on everything here. Alright? The sons of the prophets, alright, we just kind of like skipped over that. And these people that come out and they're like, you know, the Lord is going to take your master from you. And, and then Elijah, Elisha's like, yeah, be quiet. We, we can't go there. Alright? That's important to the story. But I'm suggesting it's not vital to the story. So notice verse 4. They're at Bethel. Elijah says to Elisha, stay here for the Lord is sending me on where? To Jericho. So we've got the second place on our itinerary is Jericho. And this is where we're going. Now they're at Jericho. Same, same deal happens. The sons of the prophets there come out. They ask the same question. And Elisha says, be quiet. I know. But while they're there at Jericho, 50 men of the sons of the prophet came out. And, and Sorry. While they're at Jericho, verse 6. Elijah then says to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord is sending me to the Jordan. And that is the Jordan River. So you see this X here? This is the third site on our itinerary, on this journey, this farewell tour. So Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan River. And then the text goes on and says, what happened there at the Jordan River? Elijah, verse 8, took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, which parted to the right and to the left. Then the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah then said to Elisha, what can I do for you? So the first thing I want you to notice here and zoom in on is this particular itinerary, this particular journey. So we've got Bethel, we've got Jericho, and we've got the Jordan River. And I am suggesting to you here this morning that something is up with these places. All right? It's not as though the Lord says to Elijah, I want you to just go somewhere on the other side of the Jordan River outside the land of Israel, and then I'm going to take you up. No, he specifically tells him, go to Bethel, go to Jericho, go to the Jordan River, and when you're at the Jordan River, you're going to part the waters and you get to the other side, that's where we're going to have this transition from you know, prophet to prophet, and Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Now, the question that I want to ask you this morning is, do you see a connection here to somewhere else in the Bible? Where? What's Joshua? Who said that? Yeah, Joshua, right. The conquest of Canaan. So, the... the, the, the What's happening in this story is the Lord is intentionally, intentionally wanting to bring the focus of Elijah and Elisha and the people who are watching us today as we're reading this text and think about that particular event, the conquest of Canaan, particularly Joshua's conquest. And notice what happens along the, but the, but, but the question that rises in my mind and in all of our minds here this morning is, what's the point? You know, what's he doing? Why? Why do it this way? And that's what I want us to see here as we continue on. So let's just think about these places. Okay? So number one, Bethel. And I'm going to put in brackets here. AI. <coughs> let's think of Jericho. Did I just spell that wrong? And the Jordan River. And... 
Then we're outside the land of promise, so outside of Israel on the plains of what? Moab. So the question is, is what, what is significant about these sites and these places? And that's where we always have to go back into the text, back to Joshua, to find out what, what are the things that are connecting all of these three places. And I'm going to suggest that there's something really important connecting all of these things, but I want to show it to you. Now, the first thing we need to do is we need to think about Bethel, all right? And I want to suggest to you here this morning that Bethel, in fact, is significant because it's tied to the city of Ai. <coughs> you wanted to look in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. We see in Joshua chapter 8 how God, what God did to the inhabitants of Ai, and the text says Ai and Bethel. So the battle of Ai is not a battle of Ai alone. It's the battle of Ai and Bethel. In chapter 8, verse 17, the Lord, through Joshua, says, Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So there was this great big battle of Ai. And the battle actually took, it says, some took place somewhere between Bethel and Ai. And if you read the text closely, you'll see, all the way through chapter 8, it's like Bethel and Ai, Bethel and Ai. And all of the men, all of the warriors that came out, came out from both of those cities, but it wasn't Bethel that was destroyed. It was only Ai that was destroyed. Notice verse 28, if you're looking in Joshua chapter 8. It says here, Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. So, we zoom ahead to 2 Kings, the text that we are looking at, Elijah. And Elisha, you find out, why, why in the world is Ai not mentioned there? Because Ai doesn't exist. But Bethel does. The question is, what's significant about this? And that's where we read back in that account in Joshua chapter 8, verses 18 and 26. If you remember the battle, right? If you remember the battle, Joshua and the armies go out to meet the inhabitants of Ai and Bethel. The Lord says to Joshua, verse 18, I want you, Joshua, to stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards Ai, for I will give Ai into your hand. And, 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 and the indication of the text is that Joshua holds the javelin there all day long. And why do I get that? Where do I get that? In verse 26. And it says, And Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai and Bethel to destruction. So you remember, you should be thinking at this point, the story of Moses and Aaron and Hur, where Moses' arms are being held up as the people of Israel are fighting. And when his arms come down, they're starting to lose the battle and hold his arms up. And what's the whole point of all of this? The Lord fights for Israel. The victory of Ai and Bethel is the Lord's victory. It's not Joshua's strength. It's not the people's strength. It's not the warrior's strength. It is God who fights for Israel and for Joshua. All right, so that's Bethel and Ai. 
Let's just think of Jericho. I gotta do this because this will bug me the whole time. Jericho. Just think about Jericho for a second and see how Jericho, Bethel, the Jordan all are interconnected with each other. Now just think about this for a second. Kids, what happened at Jericho? What happened at Jericho? The people of Israel walk, are, are, are told to go walk around the city of Jericho how many times? Once a day. How many times? Seven. No. One time, once a day, for six days, right? And on the seventh day, how many? Seven. Seven times, right? And what happened on the seventh day? <laughs> The walls came tumbling down. The question, who did that? God. Not Joshua? No. Not the Israelites? The Israelites did that? No. no. It was God who did that, right? God caused the walls to come tumbling down. So just think, Bethel and Ai, the javelin, God is fighting for Israel. God is fighting for Israel at Jericho. And now let's just think of the Jordan River for a second. So we go to the Jordan River. That's that's the third place on our on our tour through the Promised Land. We get to the Jordan River, and what happens in the account of the conquest narrative? You've got a million and a half people outside the land of Israel and the plains of Moab, right? A million and a half people, and what happens to the river? And not only that, we've got this. So we've got this the Jordan River, which is normally not a huge river, maybe about six feet deep and about sixty feet wide. But it's at flood stage. And at flood stage, it's about at least 100 feet wide and 16 feet deep. And what happens to the water just as soon as the priest's sandals touch the edge of the river? Anybody? The water separated. Actually, the, water's, the water stopped and, 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 and hurled up on a heap and allowed all of these people to be able to, to, to walk over through the Jordan River on dry ground. Now my question to you here this morning is, who did that? God. God did that. So God fought the battle of Ai and Bethel. God fought the battle of Jericho. And God parted the sea. God parted the river, the Jordan River. And back in Joshua chapter 4, notice what it says. Chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. After the event of the people coming through the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord, it says, for the Lord God dried up the water of the Jordan just as he did the Red Sea. And this happened so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is strong. The whole point of the Red Sea crossing, the whole point of the Jordan River crossing, the whole point of Jericho and the way God did it there, and the whole point of the battle of Ai was that the Lord's hand is strong. All right, so to sum up our focus on this farewell tour that Elijah, that the Lord leads Elijah and Elisha on, what is the link which connects all of these destinations? And this link is this. It is, it is God's power which saves Israel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It is God's power which saves Israel. So there, we've zoomed in on this farewell tour of Elijah and Elisha. Now I'm going to zoom in 
on the prophet's farewell title. The prophet's farewell title. And we get to this in verses 9 through 12. So, when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. So Elisha answered, Please let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah replied, You have asked for something difficult. If you see me being taken from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. So we're right here, pretty much at the heart of the passage. Right? The introduction at the beginning was that was that this story is about Elijah, Elijah's being taken to heaven in a whirlwind. And right before that, Elijah asks Elisha, what would you have me do for you? And Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this request, all right? It's easy to misunderstand this. Often we think of like, this means like twice as much Power That Elisha is asking that he might receive a ministry of twice as much power and twice as much miracles and the ability to perform twice as much miracles. And that's actually not the point at all. It's as if you think, we, we tend to think, you know, Elijah would have the ability to, to destroy 450 prophets of Baal. Elisha's asking for the ability to destroy 900 prophets of Baal. That's not the point of this request. In fact... If you look at Deuteronomy chapter, chapter um, 21, verse 17, this double portion language, you find, is tied to the, the inheritance of the firstborn child in Israel. So that when, well, it says in Deuteronomy 21, he shall acknowledge the firstborn, so the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of his inheritance. So the firstborn is to receive the inheritance of the land, the property of the father. And that's what's going on here in this text. Elisha's not asking for twice as much power. He's merely asking to receive the same anointing, the, same, the inheritance of the same anointing that Elijah has had in his ministry. And that's what gets us to this you know, mysterious phrase, this mysterious title, and this passing on of the baton between, you know, Elijah and Elisha. And that's what leads us into verse, verses 11 and 12. Now, as Elijah and Elisha continued walking and talking, notice this in the text. A chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind, and Elisha watched, and as he watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, i got to be honest with you. I have read this over and over and over for years. I've taught it to my kids, taught it to people in our church as well in the past, this whole episode with Elijah and Elisha and the passing on of the baton from one prophet to the next. And we tend to focus on this you know, heavenly whirlwind experience that Elijah has and, and, and that the whole story is really about you know, the succession of Elijah to Elisha. It's more than that. I want you to notice 
like, I don't know about you, but this phrase, this particular way of, of, of describing the experience is rather odd. Notice that first, Elisha, or Elijah, doesn't get caught up to be with the Lord, to, to go to heaven in a chariot of fire and horses of fire. Notice that the chariot of fire and horses of fire separate Elijah and Elisha, and then Elijah goes up to heaven in a whirlwind, not in a chariot. So just, like, get rid of that, all right? All those pictures they have on, on your wall and the Sunday school rooms of Elijah riding in a chariot to heaven doesn't happen. He goes up in this whirlwind experience, but it's these horses of fire and chariots of fire that separate the two of them. Now, first of all, that's a little bit strange. Like, what's up with these horses of fire and chariots of fire? This one's actually relatively easy. If you think of fire and the connection between the fire of the Lord, in, in, in particular, you think of the, this burning fire pot in the wilderness of Abraham was, was, was put to sleep and his covenant was enacted. And then you think of Moses and the, what, burning bush. And then you think of this pillar of fire which led Israel. And you think, and you're like, oh, this is like, this has to do with the presence of God here. So it is the Lord, in a sense, in giving us this symbolic, like, picture of his presence, his powerful presence. Because horses and chariots have to do with might and Strength. We're going to get more to that in just a moment. So here you got this horses of fire, chariots of fire, which separate Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah's taken up to heaven in the whirlwind. And then this phrase, which just caused me to scratch my head so many times. Elisha then screams out and cries out, My father, my father! Right? Because Elijah has been like a father to him. Right? He's followed him. He's been, Elisha's been his disciple. My father, my father, the chariots, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And they're like, what is going on here? It's like, Elisha's just like having like just this traumatic experience and he doesn't know what to say. No, I think this is extremely intentional. But the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean? My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Well, we know it's a title. He's, he's in, a saying, in a sense saying, Elijah, you are the chariots of fire, chariots and horsemen of Israel. You are. Or he can say, the God of Elijah is the chariots and horsemen of Israel. But still, what, what does that have to do with anything? Now, what helps us out just a little bit more before we get to the punchline here is that this is not the only place in the Old Testament where this phrase comes up. And, and it's not the only title, or Elijah's not the only one who actually has this title. There's one other person in the whole Old Testament that actually has this exact same title. Anybody know? Let me take a guess. Kids? No? Turn with me to chapter 13 in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, it says here, at the end of Elisha's life. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him crying. 
My father, my father, chariots of horsemen, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. That's the only other person this title is used of. Notice it's, it's used of Elijah, and it's used of Elisha. It's used of Elijah at the end of his life. It's used of, of Elisha at the end of his life. And you're like, yeah, okay, well, what's the point? You're like, that's an interesting connection. But what, like, what's going on here? Well, first I think that we need to realize that the ministries of Elijah and Elisha are one and the same. They're linked. Right? It's Elijah's mantle and his ministry that is passed on to Elisha. Elijah is described with this title, the my father, my father, the chariots of and horsemen of Israel, and Elisha, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So you see the connection. They're both connected. If you think of Elijah's ministry, you've got to think of Elisha's ministry. If you think of Elisha's ministry, you've got to think of Elijah's ministry. And what's the point? And that's where we need to take a little bit of a historical viewpoint. So let's, instead of zooming in on this farewell tour, Bethel, Jericho, Jordan River, Plains of Moab, and instead of just focusing in on this title that was given to both Elijah and Elisha, I want you to notice here this morning that there's a there's a huge history that's going on before all of this that helps to illumine what's going on here. You see, and this is where it's going to take us to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 20, and Joshua 11. You see, back when Israel was constituted as a nation, God gave his people the law, right? And one of the things, one of the commands in the law had to do with the kings of Israel, what they should and should not do. And notice Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 16, through 16. The Lord says through Moses, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. So he's talking about the generation of Joshua going into the land, right? He's looking forward. He's like, you're going to get into the land, and you're going to want to set a king over you. Okay, you can do that, but you're going to choose, you're going to, you must choose the king that I set over you. However, he must not acquire many what? Horses. For himself... Or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. And you're like, what? He's like, God have a thing against horses? He's like, God is not an equestrian? He does not like horses at all? No, 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 that's not the point. You see, the point of that particular passage is horses are about might and strength. And the king that you are to send over you is not to look to the war horse for his security or his strength or his might or his power, but to God. That was all what Egypt was about, right? What did, what did the Egyptians chase Israel with in the wilderness, right? The chariots and horses of Egypt. 
He chased them through the river, through the Red Sea, and what God destroyed the horse and the rider in the sea. And that was like all intentional. Like, no way are you going to be destroyed by this powerful army. I am far more powerful than any army of horses and chariots. So God is going to, right from the very beginning, he's going to like put this right into the law. When you become a nation, you get a king, make sure he doesn't trust in the horse, the warrior horse. So that's Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 to 4. And listen to this, Moses says this. When you go out to war, and so he's foreseeing, he's foreseeing ahead of them. They're, they're going to be on this conquest, right? They're going, to be, they're going to be going to Jordan River, Jericho. They're going to go to Bethel. And he says, when you go out to war against your enemies, and you see, notice this, verse Chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. And you see horses, chariots, and an army far larger than yours. Do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. You start to see the connection? You start to see the connection between the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and what's already gone before? Elijah and Elisha's ministries are like the, the, the powerful chariot rider. God was working powerfully in and through their, their ministries, in and through their prophetic ministries. There was no other prophets in Israel who could perform the kinds of powerful miracles that Israel did. And God is showing us this. Notice Joshua chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. When they come into the land... When they come into the land, in verses 1 to 9, God, God gives a special instruction to, Jer to Joshua and to the army. He says, when you come, you come into the land and they're about to, to um, in fact, this, this particular text is not about any of these, these um, battles, the battle of Jericho or Bethel, but if you read the battle after the battle of Bethel at Ai, you'll see that Jabin from the north gets all of these kings together, the entire northern kingdom and all their cities together, and they amass this great vast army out in the plains. And it's the night before, and God says to Joshua, a vast, there's going to be a vast number of horses and chariots that you are going to see tomorrow. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow, I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. And then he gives this strange command. You, Joshua, when they're all destroyed, I want you to go out and I want you to hamstring, I want you to hamstring, hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua treated them as the Lord had told them. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots. And I'm like, what? You know what hamstring a horse does? It makes a horse powerful war horse, useless. Maybe to plow a field, maybe. Turns the entire cavalry into something that you would use for farming and not for war. And you destroy the chariots, burn them all up. Now I've, I've read and watched The Lord of the Rings. And you remember the Battle of Helm's Deep? How many of you remember the Battle of Helm's Deep? Anybody? Or is this just a, a crowd that's not into the Lord of the Rings? 
You guys are or you're not. All right. Like I, re- I remember the scene in the two towers when Gandalf returns and the people of Rohan are about to be slaughtered by all of these orcs out on the plains. And the riders of Rohan come to the top of this, this valley and they literally take this army that is stretched out before them and they plow them over with their horses into this vast army. And they take out at least a third to a half of it. That's how powerful, that's how powerful horses and chariots were in the ancient world. You see, horses and chariots were literally like the tanks of modern warfare. But for Israel, God's chosen nation, God would have them trusting Why? Because at the end of the day, if you amass the means to secure your own victory, who gets the glory? If you defeat your armies with your own power, who gets glory? You get glory. God always (coughs) wants to get the glory. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. You see, beginning with Solomon, Israel began to lust after power. Solomon amassed 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Enough to build chariot cities and cities just for his his horsemen. And all the kings of Israel and Judah both followed in his footsteps. Instead of trusting in the strength and power of God, they were constantly trusting in alliances with other nations and the security of horses and chariots. I'm telling you, you just do a search through the, the Bible all the way through the Old Testament. This is a mega theme, which goes all the way through the Old Testament. It shows up in Isaiah the prophet, where, where, where God is, is, um, is speaking against Israel and Judah for amassing chariots and horses, and he, and he, and he connects this desire to amass chariots and horses with idolatry. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. And the kings of Israel were constantly trusting in their alliances with other nations and the security of horses and chariots as a sign of their strength among the nations. The very thing that they were warned not to do, they were doing. Unlike the ministries of Moses and Joshua. And this is where all of these clues, all of these clues, the farewell tour, the farewell title, the history, the links to Moses and Joshua all come together with the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha are representatives to Israel of where true strength and power lie. Not in the amassing of power and wealth and warriors and horses and chariots. Instead, they were trusting. They were not trusting in the Lord. Elijah and Elisha were. All of their miracles were a demonstration of the Lord's power, not the power and might of man. Therefore, the message of 2 Kings is far deeper than just prophetic succession. The deeper message is that the Lord is communicating to Israel and to us this morning the true strength 
that true strength does not consist in the might of man, but in the power of God. And the ministries of Elijah and Elisha testify to this. And that's why, that's why, Elijah, Elisha cries out, and Joash can't cries out, my father, my father, you, the ministry of God through you, is like the ministry of horses and chariots. You are the true strength of a nation. Now, let's just think about some application here. And i got two points, and then I'll be done. The first point of application, we don't even have to leave the Old Testament for. And if you turn with me in your Bibles here this morning, let's just, let's just finish up here with Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Isaiah is speaking to the nation. And this theme of chariots and horses come back up again. And he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large number of their horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel. And they do not consult the Lord. You see the connection? You see the connection here between trusting, relying on the strength and the power of the war horse and not on prayer? Consulting the Lord? Seeking after the face of the Lord? You see, I would suggest here this morning that nothing demonstrates your trust and reliance on the Lord and His power more than prayer. Prayer is this demonstration that you have no power and that you are relying upon God to come through for whatever it is. And here's the deal. Of all of the spiritual disciplines that we have in our disposal, I must confess this is the hardest one for me to do. And, I'm, and I've been a pastor, I'm an elder, and I'm a father of family. It's the hardest. Why? Because the, the struggle that I have when I come to prayer is I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I don't feel like I'm doing it. I'm not, I'm not affecting anything. I mean, like we run a, we run a ranch and we, have, so we farm and we have cattle. And if I go out and I do that work, I can measure what my hands have done. I go plow field, we go disc field, we go seed, and even though the, the crop isn't coming up yet, I can see the rows, that, I can see the furrows, I can, I can finish that off, I can complete that, and that's my power that has done that. And I get a certain sense of satisfaction, that's what I have done, and I've completed that. And I can measure it. But when I get up in the morning, and I spend an hour in prayer, or I get together with other people and pray, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. And that's exactly what the Lord wants us to do. Like, am I the only one who is that carnal? And so you go, like, well, so what's... So, 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 so how do we crush that? How do, how do we crush that? How do we crush the temptation to feel like prayer doesn't do anything. 
want to be reminded by everything I told you this morning is that at the end of the day, every, anything that happens that is worth anything in this world happens by the power and strength of God, not you. And so we can, we can have our alliances, we can, we can build our empires, we can build our kingdoms, we can do so much for God, and that's easy. But prayer is hard, and God is calling us to it. And the more you devote yourself to it, the more I believe that you and I will feel the desire to do it more and to see God work on our behalf and give Him glory. Now, quickly turn with me to 1 Corinthians as we close. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. I'm sure you're thinking, if this guy, this morning, has been preaching for 40-some minutes already, and he hasn't said one word about Jesus. And so, this morning, we're going to find out that actually Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, and everywhere, even in the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I just want to make reference to a few things here and link it back to what we've already seen. Brothers and sisters, Paul says in chapter 1, he's talking to the church and he's going to make reference to the gospel, which is the power of God. And how it comes to people and how it changes people. Verse 26, brothers and sisters... Consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human standpoint. Not many were what? He said, powerful. Verse 27 said, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. So Paul then says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the ministry, the message, the gospel of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. You see, Though the message of the gospel has come into razor-sharp focus in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the essence of the gospel has always been there right from the very beginning. And what is the essence of the gospel? It's what the Red Sea crossing was all about. It's what the Jordan River crossing was all about. It's what Jericho was all about. It's what Ai was all about. It's what the battle that went on after that was all about salvation is from the Lord. It's the same then as it is today. It doesn't, salvation does not come by means of our power. It doesn't come by means of our might. It doesn't come by means of our wisdom. 
It comes by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, I am amazed. I'm amazed over and over and over by the depth of your word and its interconnectedness. And we just scratched the surface here this morning on this theme. But more than anything, I want to be amazed more by the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrection, the power of Jesus Christ to save sinners and to transform them into people who look more and more and more like the Savior. You said through your Apostle Paul that to Jews, this message is a stumbling block. And to Greeks, it's considered folly and foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, I feel this morning the need for you to increase my faith in this gospel. And I trust that there are those here this morning who feel the need as well. So increase our faith in this word, in this gospel, and in your power to save. And let us be people who rely not on the strength of man, but on the power of God. In Jesus' name we pray.